Explorable is a podcast about travel, disability, and inclusion. I'm Josh Loebner, Director of Strategy at Design Sensory. I'm co-host Toby Willis, Senior Product Manager for Inclusive Technology and President of the Ability Inclusion Movement at Expedia Group. We're both blind. And we love everything travel. This is Explorable. We interview experts, advocates, and allies of tourism, destinations, and disability to make each journey more explorable. Hey everybody, this is Josh Loebner. Welcome to the Explorable Podcast, the podcast for disability inclusion and accessibility when it comes to travel and tourism. Before we get started, Toby, how are you doing today? Hey Josh, I'm doing all right. Thanks for asking and really excited to uh, share with our audience today what our guest has to offer about the National Park Service Accessibility Program. Definitely. So just to let everyone know, if you're familiar with a national park, whether it's uh, I'm in Knoxville, Tennessee, so the Smoky Mountains are the uh, one of the closest national parks to me. Toby, what's the closest park to you? Oh, my gosh. I mean, I live in Seattle and we're just surrounded by some of the most amazing uh, national parks. I do have a special affinity for the Great Smoky Mountains National Park because I grew up in Tennessee visiting the uh, the national park there. I'd say my favorite out here is uh, the Olympic National Park is is fabulous. It's it's beautiful. I think Teddy Roosevelt called it the the gem of the Americas because it is uh, so beautiful and there's you know it's not a lot of tourism out there so it's it's quite secluded and and such a great place to visit. So a little bit more about my background for everybody. Uh, I have a graduate degree in advertising, and I, I super enjoy my, my role in advertising and disability inclusion and communications, but my undergraduate, um, I have near and dear to me a, a background in, uh, in forestry. My undergraduate was forestry resource management, and um, I had a lot of classmates that were uh, going into the uh, park service, whether it's state park services, national park service, and uh, several of them uh, became park rangers. And I'll never forget one of the first classes I had. Um, one of the professors wrote the word recreate on the board. And then he kind of spaced out the word to, to form recreate. And uh, that was a conversation I had with, with our guest, Jeremy Bazell, branch chief for the accessibility management program for the National Park Service. Uh, Jeremy and I had a conversation about that and, and how parks really are opportunities to to recreate oneself, whether it's the natural vistas of uh, the Great Smoky Mountains or the buildings and the historical sites that are also under the auspices of the National Park Service. And Jeremy, I'd love to welcome you and, and hear a little bit more from you about your role. Accessibility is significant and important when it comes to welcoming as many people as possible. So welcome to the, the show and tell us a little bit more about your role. Uh, great. Uh, thank you very much for having me. Um, I always appreciate any opportunity that we have to not only encourage folks with disabilities to come to the national parks, but to provide information about our accessibility at parks. You're, you're, you, you started by talk, asking that I talk a little bit about my role 
working for the National Park Service. And and I have to admit, I, I somewhat hit the jackpot when it comes to getting jobs as a person with a background in accessibility, um, working in uh, many different contexts in the federal government. To be able to be now working at an agency with a mission like the National Park Service mission, where I get the opportunity to go around to different parts of the country and visit national parks. You know, it, it really is that, that dream job that a lot of people could get. So I feel very lucky to get it. And, and the core of the job that I have really is coordinating subject matter expertise around accessibility. And I say that because if you think about what our national parks do, whether they are historic sites, whether they preserve natural resources, whether they are telling some part of the American story. You know, the vast majority of the people who work at these sites are experts in any number of things related to preserving natural resources, to preserving historic sites, to operating facilities, to providing visitor services. So you've got people from all walks of life, from all around the world, who are highly trained experts in, you know, caveology and mountain climbing and search and rescue and these fascinating topics. But the majority of them are not people who have backgrounds in accessibility and disability. That, that's not where most people who work for the Park Service are coming from. But because our park exists to serve all people, we have to make sure that we have subject matter experts who can then coordinate and collaborate with those folks on making sure that that historic experience that they know so much about is accessible, on making sure that the trails that the trail crews know so much more about so much about are more accessible. So that's really where the role of what we do comes in. I, I work out of the national headquarters in Washington. So I don't work for a particular park. Really, I work for all the parks, if you think about it. And it's, it's important to understand that the Park Service is a very decentralized organization. You know, we have 420 plus units around the country, and they all have unique challenges in unique parts of the country with unique missions and unique features. We tend to say, Hey, you know what? If you've been to one national park, you've been to one national park. So because of the decentralized nature of our organization, we serve really in like a technical assistance and training capacity. We exist not to tell parks what to do. We exist not to provide funding to them to do things. What we exist to do is to support what they're doing on the day-to-day -day when they say, hey, we've got this challenge at this historic site and we want to be able to make it more accessible. How would we do that? Uh, who do you know that has done that before somewhere else? Are, is there any best practices out there? How do we interpret this law related to accessibility that we're not familiar with? We've got this unique situation with this request. How would we do that? So our job really is to be there to not only proactively address those things, 
but also reactively answer questions and field problems for people. And then, you know, we do also get involved in doing some evaluation and assessing levels of accessibility. You know, if, if a park is looking for somebody to come out and help them understand where they are not accessible and where they could be more accessible, um, we would be involved in that. And I would also say that because of where we sit in terms of being in Washington and having people who are involved in the disability community, we really do the, the piece of outreach that has to be done to the disability community. You know, so we will work with national disability organizations to understand their concerns. And in some cases, we, we could have a part that says, hey, you know, we want to get better at working with people with autism. Can you help us find an organization that could support us in that? And we might contact a national autism organization and say, can you get a, ch a local chapter to collaborate with this park and sort of serve as that connective tissue um, around these issues? So I would say, I mean, that that's really what our day-to-day -day, uh, focus and role in the organization is, is really just to both be looking internally at how can I support a park to be more accessible externally in terms of how do I connect parks to the disability community. And then we have some pieces that just have to do with, for example, doing a podcast like this where we get a chance to promote to people the accessibility that does exist at national parks. Because what I'd really like to do is spend more of our time focusing on what it is we get right about accessibility rather than, than the chances that we sometimes miss or the places that we have that aren't accessible often because of natural resources or historic character that we can't impair. Well, that's great. Let's keep the positives going. Uh, Toby, what questions do you have? Yeah, I'm just uh, excited to hear about um, how you're creating a network effect. And, and I love that, you know, decentralized model and, and getting the community involved with those local parks. I think it's really important uh, because the community understands that local uh, need and culture around inclusion. And to that end, I'm wondering if you, uh, Jeremy, would share some examples of, of this uh, work in practice. And I, I know there's probably so many, but are there some that stand out, some initiatives that you've spearheaded that, that you'd like to share with our audience? Well, I can give you a specific example of something that we have going on right now involving the disability community. I actually did bring up the example just now about how um, we've got a lot of interest in parks around how we do a better job of serving visitors who have autism. We tend to be very focused on access for people with mobility disabilities because, again, you know, we do have so much outdoor infrastructure, um, and that seems to be the place where it's really obvious, right? But what we don't think about quite as much is, well, how does a child with autism who wants to participate in our junior ranger program participate in that program? How does a, an adult with autism who might have, you know, sensitivity to light and sound, you know, how does that person navigate one of our visitor centers where we might have a lot of sound pollution from videos that are running, you know, or other effects that we have going on? Like, what would be the things that we could do around those? So, for example, in collaboration with um, a part of the Park Service that we call Interpretation and Education, which are that national level group that works on providing the field with support on how we do a better job working with visitors and telling the stories of the parks, 
you know, we've put together a four-part series on autism, which is actually in collaboration with an institute on disability out of Indiana University, where they have some people who are specialists at working with people who have autism. So that's an example of the sort of thing that because we have those kinds of connections, we put that together and then we can have this four-part webinar series that we um, share with the field about the experience of autism and how you serve people with autism. Another thing that we do that's an initiative, which actually started as a result of um, COVID-19 and our recognition that we were rapidly making changes to the way parks operate in response to COVID-19. Whether we were closing buildings or curtailing services or whatever it is, the parks remained open, but the services were changing. We needed our people in the field to understand how is that change going to impact people with disabilities? You know, if you have created you know, social distancing requirements that change the flow of the building, how might that affect people who are blind? If you now have everyone in your park wearing masks, how is that going to affect communication with visitors who have hearing disabilities and may need to rely on reading lips? So what we actually did, because this, we don't have subject matter experts who are just ready to go talking about this. This is a brand new world. So what we did is we started a series of what we call disability dialogues, where we brought in people with disabilities to not necessarily talk about their experiences in parks, but, you know, hey, what's it been like going to the grocery store? What's it been like going to the mall, you know, and navigating this COVID-19 world uh, as a person with a disability? So we had a session where we brought in individuals who use mobility devices We had a session where we brought in folks who have hearing disabilities. We had a session where we brought in folks who have intellectual disabilities and one where we had folks with hearing disabilities. And just had them talk with the field about what their experience with COVID-19 was like. And we asked them questions that we thought would inform a discussion about how would that extrapolate to the experience at a visitor center? How would that extrapolate to a walk and talk with a ranger guide? Those ended up being so popular that we decided not to stop with COVID-19, and we just have a monthly disability dialogue now where we bring in folks from the disability community, and it's it's very similar to we have our own internal podcast where basically we have a host and they ask people within the disability community questions about a particular topic. So we had one where we brought in people who used unique mobility devices to use trails in the national parks. And they talked about their devices and what they looked like and what their experiences were when they ran across people who were questioning the use of those devices um, on our trails. So that's the sort of thing where, again, we're connecting with the disability community and having them tell their story to our park service staff. And we're getting, you know, 100 plus or more people who attend those every month and then we archive them and we make them available for people later. So that's just that's an example of some of the initiatives that we have where, we're, where we are trying to connect the disability community, not necessarily with an individual park, but certainly with our park staff. I think it's great how you mentioned that it's so popular. You know, the program is going to continue. And I think we hear that almost from every guest. It's, it's how, you know, businesses are and organizations are spinning up these programs and then realizing how popular they are and how well attended. It's great. I think it speaks directly to the business case for why we should be doing this. 
Yeah, I, I would I would say that one thing we don't have a shortage of is we have a hunger for knowledge about accessibility uh, in the Park Service. I would say I've yet to run across any situation in which people were not interested in making things accessible. What is more problematic is they just don't know how or they might not know the questions to ask. And I would also say that in our experience, it's very rare that there isn't an answer. It's more often that there's too many answers or there's too many different ways to address the problem. And it's more about, well, how do you choose the best solution? Which resource do you look at for the way to do this? So it's all a part of our job almost is not just connecting people to this information that, that they might not know is already out there, but also curating some of it. Because if you look at technology alone, you know, and we're talking about technological solutions to some of these issues. The, there's an immense amount of technology out there that could solve many of our accessibility challenges. Well, which one is the best one to use in what situation for which group can be a very complicated question. Jeremy, it's great to hear about you welcoming so many different uh, voices from the disability community. There's a saying, nothing about us without us, that's part of the disability community and, and really a cultural touchstone so that whether it's brands, whether it's parks, whether it's government organizations, whomever is coming up with initiatives that support inclusion and accessibility, that hopefully people with disabilities have a voice. And it's it's great to hear that your team not only started it during COVID, but you're continuing to to listen to those voices and to, and to gain insights. I do want to ask a little bit more about your role in the Park Services program when it comes to accessibility. What's the history of it? You know, we, we all know the history of the National Park Service from Teddy Roosevelt, and, and we know that the Park Service has evolved over time. What is a little bit of the history maybe you could share with us about accessibility at the parks? And then what are some goals, understanding that COVID, I think, threw everybody a massive global curveball, but are there any goals that you would like to kind of steer back towards when it comes to accessibility for the National Park Service? You know, the good news about the accessibility program with the National Park Service is, you know, it is not in its infancy. You know, I am carrying the torch forward for many, many folks who have held this seat before I did. We really start back with the passage of uh, Section 504 in the 1970s and, and those regulations. And I think even then there was a recognition of the need to adapt to those requirements. Really, it goes back to 1968 when they passed the Architectural Barriers Act and required that federal facilities become accessible. If you look back historically in the Park Service, it's going to follow the same trajectory as most other organizations, which is the requirements for us to do things accessibly, you know, came in now since the 1970s. But what the requirements really said was, well, anytime you do something new, you have to make sure that new thing meets the standards and you don't really have to do anything to the old stuff until you rehabilitate it. I'm not going to tell anybody every single facility and trail and everything that we have everywhere in the Park Service meets today's accessibility standards because we do have some things that date back to well before the 1960s and 1970s that we have not rehabilitated. Or you also have many things where to do those kinds of upgrades would affect the historic character or would affect the natural resource. And so we have a balancing act uh, involved in that. 
But what I would say is that if you look back at the evolution of the Park Service, we are trying to evolve away from a model where accessibility is something that you add. Accessibility is something that is on top of your baseline to where we say, like accessibility is just baked into what you do, that it, you would view it the same way that you view meeting plumbing code, meeting electrical code. Like you don't design a building and then say, and how are we going to make sure it meets electrical code? You design a building to meet electrical code. We want to move culturally the same way to saying you don't think about, okay, we're going to build a visitor center. We plan and build the visitor center and then we say, okay, so how are we going to make it accessible? We have to get a seat at the table up front in the initial design. And that is the initial design, not in just in terms of structural, but like, well, what purpose is the visitor center going to serve? What are you going to do with the visitor center? So I think that's really a goal that we have is moving beyond the, the idea that accessibility is a separate thing. It's an additional thing. It's funded separately. It's handled separately. No, it's just sort of part and parcel of the way we do business. So I think that is one of the, you know, shifts in the historic way that you, we view things. I think in the past, it definitely was looked at as an extra, an addition, a change, a modification versus, oh, it's just built in. I think another piece that shifts is we have tended to look at accessibility in a stovepipe way, meaning we have accessible facilities and we have a way to make our facilities accessible. And then we have a way to make our interpretation accessible. But that's not how visitors experience the park. For them, it is a seamless experience. And we've been really emphasizing you have to look at accessibility from an entry to exit standpoint. And that entry begins before you even get to the park. It's what is the experience you have on our website when you do research about the park? What is the experience when you're in the parking lot? What is the experience when you're approaching from the parking lot to the visitor center? What is your experience in the visitor center learning about what you can do in the rest of the park? What is your experience after you leave the visitor center to go have those activities that you learned about in the visitor center? Again, we haven't always looked at things like that historically. That's the other thing that we're, we're pushing is to say, look at it that way. And, and I'll tie that back to us trying to do a better job involving people from the disability community. Well, what's the best way to understand that entry to exit experience? Have some people with disabilities come out to your park and go through that entry to exit experience with you and say, you know, this is what I would need. This is what would make the experience better for me. This is the barrier that I experienced on your website, or this was the barrier that I experienced when I got to your visitor center or, or whatever it is. We're sort of trying to keep pace with what you hear in most organizations in terms of the way they have evolved from this is about compliance with the law to this is now about equity, diversity, and inclusion. And changing, changing that mindset is a big part of what we're trying to do. I, I silently cheered when you said all that. That's phenomenal to hear of that pivot from simply compliant to something greater. That's that's wonderful. Yeah, I think it's worth reiterating how taking that big picture look of the end-to-end -end life cycle is hugely important. It's difficult to make everything accessible to every user all the time. 
especially when you have these trade-offs with business and historical value and characteristics that are uh, sometimes, you know, integral to the to the site itself. But I think uh, in general, inclusive design is good design. And if we you know get this right for those of us who need it most, it's going to be more awesome for everyone. And you're not doing this at any small scale. I mean, the parks service is quite large. And you mentioned at the top of the call, Jeremy, that there's over 420 sites, I believe. Can you tell us a little bit more about the, the total scope of the sites you're servicing, how many visitors you have, some just general stats like that? As of right now, we do have 423 national park sites. If people aren't familiar, there are entities called national parks. Not everything that we have purview over is a national park. We have national recreation areas. We have national historic sites. So there's all different kinds of experiences. We have national battlefields. So so of those 423, not everything is technically called a national park. Those are going to be your big, that's, you know, the Grand Canyon and the Yellowstone and the Yosemite. But then we have, you know, national historic sites and other things that I, that I was just commenting on. And they range in size from massive to very small. They range in topic from, you know, natural to historic. There's, there, we got one of everything. I guarantee whatever it is, we have one of, we have one of it in the National Park Service. There's no question. We had, well, kind of in a weird place because we did have some decreases in visitation due to COVID. Like we're still seeing 1.05 billion recreation visitor hours to our parks. We had, you know, 237 million visits to our parks in 2020. So we're, we're serving millions of people a year from all across the world. And the way we look at it is we don't collect any data on how many of our visitors have disabilities. But we look at it and say like, all right, well, if you get, you know, 200 million visitors and you assume 20% of the population is people with disabilities, that's millions of people a year um, who are visiting our parks who have disabilities that we need to serve. We've got sites. There's a now a site in every state. Many states have multiple sites. Uh, we've got them in you know outlying territories. We've got them in Puerto Rico. There, you know, we've got them in Hawaii and Alaska. So we've got huge swaths of territory to cover. Some of them don't actually have any land involved. We have some sites that are just in the water. So that presents a tremendous amount of challenges and opportunities because there's no formula. Like we can't just say, oh, here's how you make X accessible. We can't just say there's a standard accessible dock that we use all across the park service. Well, in some cases, that lake is out in the desert and the dock can be there year round because there's no freezing and it's not going to affect it. In other places, well, it's going to freeze. So you actually have to have a dock that you can take in and out of the water based on the season. That makes the job fun because there is no standard formula. And, and one would hope that it gives us at least some job security as well, because, you know, as we evolve and conditions change and we add new things, there will always be new challenges. And then we have to adapt always to new technology um, that shows up to that we can say, hey, man, that old style of a picnic table isn't the best style anymore. There was a long time where if you want an accessible picnic table, well, it was just this long extension at the end, which meant, hey, if you're a person with a disability, you always have to sit at the end of the picnic table. Well, now they have some where they've adapted it where there's a cutout in the middle. You know, maybe we need to be looking at a mixture of those styles that we put out 
um, you know, to benefit people who are picnicking. It's a constant movement and adaptation as we see basically constant growth in National Park Service visits. Year after year, other than years where it's COVID-19, we are seeing just growing numbers of visitation, which means we're going to see growing numbers of people with disabilities visiting parks. And I think another really important thing to point out that a lot of people don't consider when it comes to national parks and disability is we have a ton of urban parks. We have a ton of urban parks that are accessible by public transportation. While there are inherent challenges sometimes to just, you know, the air travel involved and getting to a far-flung park that's out in the West, for example, and then getting the transportation out there from the airport. Golden Gate is National Recreation Area. It's right in the heart of San Francisco. You know, we have parks in Philadelphia. We have multiple parks in New York. We have multiple parks in Boston. So the national park experience, you know, is for everyone. And now we're adding all kinds of different kinds of accessible transportation options. We've got two pilots going on at parks right now where they're using autonomous vehicles, for example. Well, how are we adapting to the use of autonomous vehicles in the national parks and making sure those are accessible? We've got a lot going on in a lot of different sites to serve, you know, 423 parks that are seeing millions of people a year and growing. Yeah, I think it's, uh, you know, good visibility into the scope and the complexity that you're faced with in providing an inclusive experience. You know, a lot of this comes down to awareness. So when you're thinking about delivering on the what I call the in-trip experience. So the uh, obviously inclusive design, you know, we think about physical space and digital experience when people are, you know, looking at your website, things like that. But inclusive design extends into policy and practices. So designing policies and protocol around how we manage visitors and, and their needs. So I'm wondering if there's training for staff at the parks and um, what that looks like. You know, how, how are you raising awareness and making people more conscientious about the experience? To echo what you said, for most people, the National Park Service is going to boil down to their interactions with our green and gray. Like the people who are in uniform, who when I show up at the visitor center and I'm like, hey, what's there that's great to do here? Can you show me where the campground is? Can you give me some tips of good places to go? That interaction there is going to make or break your experience more so than any facility infrastructure that we have, in my opinion. Having those folks who are well-informed just in general about understanding how to react to and respond to disability is very important, particularly in the sense that, you know, nine times out of 10, even if something that we have is not quite up to accessibility standards, we have an obligation to adapt. We have an obligation to figure something out to find out, well, what is it that you're trying to achieve? Is there some alternate way that we can offer to help you achieve that? That's another thing that we are really emphasizing, uh, not just through disability dialogues, but we actually have two other monthly trainings that we do, again, that are open to anyone in the field, and we record them and we archive them. So we've got our monthly disability dialogue, which features people with disabilities talking about their experiences. We also just have a monthly topical webinar where we pick an important topic about disability policy, about accessibility, and someone who is a subject matter expert in that topic does a presentation. So, for example, every year we do a presentation on 
service animals, what they are, how to work with people with service animals, what the rights of people with service animals are, etc. We generally do that just before most of the seasonal hiring goes on so that our seasonal employees have an opportunity to hear about service animals and better understand, hey, somebody shows up with a service animal, here's what you can do, here's what you can't do, here's how you work with those folks. So we have those once a month available to everyone in the park service. In addition to that, we have what we call office hours. And the office hours is the least formal of all of these, where it's, it's again, it's like a radio call-in show. But instead of having a panel of people with disabilities, you know, who we ask questions on a particular topic, we say, hey, we're opening the phone lines, whatever it is about accessibility or disability that you in the field have experienced, you have a question about, this hour is open and our staff is going to be on the line for you to say, hey, I've got this historic building, there's no access to the second floor, what should I do, do you have any tips? Oh, you know, we had a visitor who came in the other day and had a challenge with this, I don't want that to have to happen again. Do you guys have any suggestions? So we have all of the, that array of things available every month. We archive them and then, you know, we send out monthly updates to people. We then also have an internal site for employees. It's just kind of like a hub of curated information on disability and policy. And there's like a whole piece on it where, you know, we're sharing various guides to how you interact with people with disabilities that have been produced by disability organizations. Because again, that's one where there's plenty of information about that out there. I don't need to reinvent the wheel. What I need to do is I need to be able to connect people with that. So in addition to that, we also do face-to-face -face trainings. Certainly if a park were to say like, hey, can you come out and spend a day doing a training with us on this? We used to have twice a year, week-long face-to-face sessions where we brought people to a park taught them the basics of accessibility and then we'd go around the park and we'd find where are the things that are good, where are the things that are not good, um, and talk about those so that people could take that back to their park. We're actually just this month piloting an online version of that because nobody can travel. So we sort of do like these, um, these things of progressive levels of intensity. We have an agreement with Indiana University where people can uh, do an online sort of self-paced accessibility certificate program. You could complete that program and then you could sign up for a week-long, more intensive training to learn even more about accessibility with the hope that those people are going back as kind of accessibility ambassadors to their park to be raising the questions and saying, hey, I think there's an accessibility problem that we have here that we need to address. And then those people know where you go to get information about addressing it. And then they can keep those skills up by attending disability dialogues, disability webinars, and disability office hours on a monthly basis. And we just cycle through that year after year. Hey, Jeremy, that service animal training uh, resonates so deeply with me because I work a guide dog and uh, I love to hike. And if you ever uh, have seen how graceful a guide dog handler can navigate a trail, no matter how rough and rocky it might be, it's it's quite amazing and it's liberating for those of us who have service animals. So thanks for doing that work. And I'm curious if any of that has been externalized. Is this all proprietary content that you've created or, or can our listeners uh, go consume any of that? I, I think it depends probably on what it is. I, I want to say that one of the platforms we use is YouTube. 
like once the once the training is done, we've got it. Like when we reference people out to it, it's on YouTube, which makes me feel like it's there somewhere. I wouldn't be able to tell you like, oh, you do this search and it shows up. And what's actually interesting that's happening is I don't know that word has gotten out in terms of out to the community, but we now have other bureaus in the Department of the Interior saying like, hey, is there any chance our folks can attend these trainings? We've got people from the Forest Service who are like, hey, can people from the Forest Service attend these trainings? So we've definitely made it open to other federal agencies and it becomes more of a internet capacity issue. It's like, well, how many people can you get on this particular internet platform? The one thing that we don't make available publicly are our office hours because we want people to feel comfortable saying like, hey, I think I've got a problem and can you help me solve this problem? We don't ever want to deter people from sharing that because otherwise you're not going to get it solved. Uh, the other things that we do, like I said, they're probably out there somewhere. I just don't know how to this is all great, though. It's amazing at the layers upon layers of listening and, and operationalizing that your team is being able to, to implement across the entire national park system. I, I do want to ask, with all the conversations internally, what are some conversations externally? Do you ever hear back about that family or that group or individuals who recreate in these national parks that have disabilities? Are there some positive stories and feedback that you receive? We don't necessarily get them because, again, we're at, you know, that national level. What trickles up to us are the parks who are very proud when they get something from somebody who reaches out and says, hi, you know, my family had this wonderful experience. It's almost always like it's a child with a disability who came and had a positive experience and then the family wants to let them know. Or it'll trickle up to us when somebody says, hey, you know, such and such ranger did such a great job, you know, helping us with this thing. But what I will say is that what we are trying to do at a national level also is we are trying to collect our good examples of accessibility and put them online, not just for our people, but for the public. Because I, I look at this as we, we have two directions, which is I could say, I want to go to X park. I wonder what is accessible there. Or you might be a person who says, I don't really care what park it's at. I like hiking. Let me find where accessible trails are, and I'll just go to the parks that have them. We do have the first model where you can identify a park and you can find out you know, what features it will have. What I'd like to be able to do is collect where we have good examples of accessible kayak launches and have that in a place where if I'm interested in accessible kayaking, I can go, oh, look at these five parks that have these launches. Oh, and there's pictures of these launches too, so that I know which ones I'm familiar with. You know, we've, we've got parks that have put a lot of time and money and effort into doing audio descriptive tours of their sites. I want those to be out there because my guess is there'd be some people who'd say, well, I'll go to that park if for no other reason than to experience this audio description. I went to one of them down in Florida that had like it's like triggered as you're wandering around the plantation site. The thing is triggering as you walk into a building and it's telling me all about the building and what I'm seeing and everything. This is not a place that most people would think of to go to get access to. You'd associate like, oh, they'll have that at the Grand Canyon at Yosemite. Like, nope, it's a fairly small park in Florida that's got this great audio descriptive tour. 
I want to be able to drive people toward going to those parks because I feel like, number one, if you have visitors who are going there creating that demand, it reinforces us having it. And then number two, because we are decentralized, you know, we do have a little bit of a competitive streak where you don't want to be the park that doesn't have that. You want your park to also have its picture featured on our site to say like, oh, well, but look at all the stuff we have at our park. I want you to come to my park too. You know, I want you to know you're welcome here. So we are trying to, to work on what's that catalog of the stuff we know we are doing well um, so that we can share it with people. Uh, which is not quite the same as like having testimonials, but at the very least, it's the things that we feel confident, you know, hey, we put a lot of effort into making sure that this is something that is attractive and is accessible to people with disabilities. I'm so excited to go revisit my local national park after this conversation. I'm really impressed with the progress that that you've made in demonstrating disability inclusion and accessibility is important. Would you share any words of encouragement with listeners uh, who are just starting their journey? I I wish every destination and and hotel and activity could hear this and lean in to this degree. And I'm hoping that you can share some words of encouragement to, you know, give people the the courage and the fortitude to get started. So the first thing that I would say, which is kind of a repeat of things I've already said is like, number one, I think people, and it's people even in our parks, is they start out from this place where it feels daunting. It feels like I'm so far behind and there is so much that has to be done. There's no way I'll ever be able to make everything accessible. And we experience that too. Again, 423 sites that cover millions upon millions of acres of every different variety of experience that that you can have. I am trying to boil this down to something that I think is simple and manageable. The way I boil it down to something simple and manageable is if I just knew that our people who are working out in the parks, A, understood enough to go, wait, hold on, there's probably something we should be doing about accessibility. And then they knew, well, now that I've raised the question, I know where to go to get help to get this answer. That, that's my measure of success. If we could have that everywhere where everyone knew to stop and ask that question and then knew where to go to get an answer, I'd say, hey, we're in good shape. Because while it seems daunting, like I said earlier, like number one, the answer is out there. That You are not going to be able to throw anything at people that somebody somewhere hasn't seen and dealt with and come up with a solution. It's a matter of being able to find the right people and find the right solutions. And in most cases, it's a matter of the fact that there's too many solutions to choose from and it's finding the right one that's the right match. And then number two is the starting point is with people with disabilities. One of the things that I think is a second deterrent Um, besides it being daunting, this people's concern of saying, yes, but if I go down this road, well, now what I have to do is I have to expose to people where I'm not getting it right. I have to expose to you what my inaccessibility is. And while it is not impossible that you could expose yourself to a group of people with disabilities and say, hey, I need help. I know my stuff is not accessible. You might run across the one-tenth of one percent of people who want to somehow use that against you. But in all of my experiences, the folks that we've brought in, they want to help. They're, They're not out to get me. 
they're out to say, yeah, you know, there is a challenge with your accessibility and we have all this kind of support that we can provide you to help you address that challenge. And we can bring our expertise to this. And it's more of been a community of support than it has been at all antagonistic. The starting point has to be working with the disability community, getting their input on this to help you solve the problems. I guess the other thing that I would say is you you will find a difference for all visitors. When we make things accessible to people with disabilities, we really have done a better job of making them accessible to everyone. As we add more tactile experiences for people with vision disabilities, we have increased the enjoyment that we have of our visitors who are children. Or anyone who's a kinesthetic learner, right? Like just some people learn by hands-on, by touching. And Inclusive design is good design, so took the words out of my mouth. If we get this right for those of us who need it most, it will inherently be more awesome for everybody. Yeah, and, and the last thing that I generally say is there is money that you often spend to do this. However, it's way cheaper to get it right in your initial design and rehabilitation of your structure than it is to have to redo it later when you don't get it right. But you, you can't look at it as a compliance burden as much as you look at it as an investment. And it is an investment not just in current visitors who have disabilities. What you are doing is you are investing in future you. You very well in the future could be the person who has the mobility need. I would hate to think that as I age, I will suddenly not be able to go to as many national parks because I didn't do a very good job of making them accessible for myself as I age and my vision gets a little bit worse and my hearing gets a little bit worse and it's a little harder for me to walk. For most people, that is almost an inevitability. So what you are doing is you are investing in your own ability to go to these sites later in life. And I think if you think about it that way, you're suddenly like, oh, well, it seems like this is probably worth the money to make sure that I can come back here in 20 years and enjoy this in the same way that my visitors today enjoy this. Powerful words. I, I feel like I just heard an amazing sermon, so I want to say amen to all of that, Jeremy. Jeremy, where can people go to, our listeners go to, to find out more about the National Park Service and accessibility? I will give you the, the most obvious answer, which is we do have www.nps.gov. And on that site, we have a subject matter site. If you actually just do a search for accessibility, you can get to our subject matter site. And our subject matter site on accessibility actually has this map on it. And then you can pick a park and you can click on that park on the map and it's going to take you to the accessibility information about that park. Each one of our park sites has a plan your visit section, and under that plan your visit section, there is accessibility information about the park. So you can either go straight to that park if you want, because you know, oh, you know, I want to visit the Everglades, so you just go to their accessibility section. Or if you're not sure where you want to go and you just want general information, you can click around on our map that takes you then to each individual park's accessibility site. This is all phenomenal information. Hopefully we'll uh, pass this COVID time. And for our listeners that are hearing this, hopefully you visit those websites and visit a national park near you. 
Jeremy Bazell, Branch Chief for the Accessibility Management Program of the National Park Service. Thanks so much, Jeremy. This has been an Explorable podcast. We'll listen to you and we'll catch you next time. Thanks so much. Explorable is a Design Century original production in collaboration with the Travelability Summit and produced by Brad Carpenter. Find out more about our productions, podcasts, and insights at designcentury.com slash originals and travelabilitysummit.com. You can connect with Josh Loebner or myself, Toby Willis, on LinkedIn.